Well, hello again. This is Buck Benny speaking. Welcome to Monday Movie Night. What we're doing here is I'm presenting a movie and uh, the first part of a serial uh, cliffhanger and a cartoon and some trailers, um, a newsreel, all from the same year. So this is your chance to kind of experience the way a movie, the way that audiences did back in the 1940s, 1950s. Anyway, it's really designed to be on YouTube more than anything else. You can, of course, listen to it here, but I'll have a link to YouTube in the show notes where you can watch the whole thing, and my team will introduce all of it. And so I hope you're going to enjoy it and keep coming back for Monday movie nights. See you next time. The movie of the week. Presenting the world premiere of an original motion picture. On the movie of the week. Okay. Well, Joel, again, this is Buck Benny speaking. We have another one of our Night at the Movies to present to you today. I uh, hope you're going to enjoy it. Certainly, these Night at the Movies have been very popular, more than I thought they would be. And we're getting a lot of discussion over on Facebook about the concept and how people really like be bringing this all together. And I'll talk about all that in just a minute. But we have with us today Terry Phillips from Imaginary Theater. And we're just going to chat about some things and Terry can chime in wherever he wants. But what the concept behind this, and someone sent me uh, in our discussions over on Facebook, they brought up uh, Matinee at the Bijou, which was a PBS series that ran from 1980, I think 1980 to 1988, it seems like. So uh, I had remembered that sort of in my memory, I guess, because I'd watched a lot of it. I remember loving that. And each week they would show, they would kind of give you a night at the movies like it used to be back in 1940 or something, where you'd, you'd go to a movie and you'd have a, a serial cliffhanger that you would watch, like uh, Buck Rogers or Flash Gordon or... Uh, I don't know, there are various, a uh, lot of other ones. Uh, in this case, we're going to bring you Son of Zorro, uh, episode one. What's lovely is, historically, see, you guys are in a different place than, than they were back then. So back then, you had to show up. The next the concept was you'd come to that first week and catch Son of Zorro, part one, and you go, oh, I want to catch part two. And so I'm going to come back next week, even though it's a movie that I may not be that interested in that it's on but it's like i want to catch the next zorro so you theoretically come back every week well in our case we're only going to show the first part of any of these but i will link in the show notes to the whole thing because on on uh, youtube on every one of these someone's taken all 12 parts of the serial and put it together as one long movie usually it's about four hours long unless they cut out they had redundant parts where they'd at the beginning of a, they'd recap the previous episode and so forth. So some people cut those out. Maybe it's only three hours long or two and a half hours. You know, you can look out there and find what you want, but uh, it's nice that we have YouTube that has these things. So anyway, so um, 
uh, Matt and the Bee would present these, and I and I liked watching them. And then when I was looking at different movies and talking about presenting movies and things, I thought, well, why not present them as a night at the movies? And so, like last, uh, the last one I presented was um, Stagecoach from 1939. And so I grabbed a cartoon from 1939, a newsreel from 1939, a serial from 1939, which was the first part of Buck Rogers, and that was fun to present that. So this time. We have uh, we're, the the movie we're going to be presenting is an Orson Welles film with Rita Hayworth. Uh, at the time, they they had been married for many years, and then, but they were in the midst of breaking up, and so they were uh, estranged at this point. I think not officially divorced yet, uh, and then in this film together. So I would assume the project came about when they might have still been together decided they wanted to do this. And then of course, then uh, they're breaking up, but I think they continue to, to do the project and she does a marvelous job and, and he does a great job too. Um, we'll get more into that as we go. But I thought first we'd talk about what the other things we're gonna present to you first. Uh, so the first thing we'll present to you is I'll try and find a trailer for either of this film, um, if I can find it, I, I didn't look yet, so I might not be able to find it. But if I can, I'll include a trailer for this film because that's what I did last time. But it might include some trailers for other films that are going on from 1947 to kind of give you a flavor of what's coming out in 1947. Uh, then after that, uh, we'll present to you a newsreel from 1947. Our newsreel this time is going to be about a Princess Elizabeth getting married and who would later, and she got married in 1947 and 1952, her father would pass away and she would become queen of England. And she's the queen up until the present day. She's still uh, alive today, though people are saying she hasn't been in public in a while. And so some people are speculating that she's sick or dying or whatever. And she's, I, I don't know if Terry knows what her age is currently or not. I, I think it's 90. I think it said she was born in 25, and I know my dad's was born in 27, and he's 94, so I think she'd be 96. That sounds about guess. right. That yeah. sounds and, uh, So, Terry, what, did you have anything, any thoughts on Queen Elizabeth or Princess Elizabeth getting married? Uh, or anything? Actually, I'll, I'll, I'll tell you, she's my mom's age, so, so she's 96. Okay, perfect. Yeah, that's right. She is my mom's age. And um, so my math was correct. Your math was so, spot on. So people out there, stop telling me I don't know how to do math. <laughs> <laughs> and all without the aid of an abacus, too. That's right. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth was uh, obviously very young at the time. Yes, 25. And, and uh, okay. so even though there were monarchs who came to the throne at an earlier age, nevertheless, she was not, uh, not a, an experienced... Um, a leader by any means and little did she know and <laughs> that uh, she would end up being the longest reigning monarch in the history of the united kingdom which is and, amazing yeah yeah um it was also interesting to to see her husband uh, prince philip uh the man who was to was at that at that moment becoming her husband um also looking remarkably young because for most of my life he's been right man, yeah yeah no longer living the the thing that i just last year so that's yeah. right and the thing that i uh that i was taken by given my own ethnicity my father was of greek origin mm -hmm. 
and and Prince Philip was not ethnically Greek, but he was uh, in the line of his of his um, royal lineage. Right. He uh, was also a, a a prince, I think. Yes, he was. He was a prince, and so I I, I learned that just this week. I was like, I didn't know that. So yeah. And the other thing I read about their meeting, uh, Elizabeth and Philip's meeting, is that they met at a wedding, not this wedding, but yeah. they met at, at another wedding. <laughs> they met at their own wedding, wow. <laughs> <laughs> um, Remarkable. But as is often the case, because there was a bit of an age gap between them, uh, I don't think she was, um, I don't think she was aware of where their relationship was heading, except that by most accounts, uh, she was the one who fell in love with him. Uh, everyone says of, of the young Philip that he was a strikingly handsome man. Yeah. I think that shows in this uh, in this um, little video. And he couldn't have been too much older than her, I wouldn't think. No, I, he just passed away last year. I mean, he because uh, if I can, if he was five years older than she was, something. he was born in uh, hmm, 1921. Yeah, he was born in 1921, so he was four years older. Four years older. Okay. Yeah. So then he lived to be like almost a hundred back quite uh, Yeah, just about a hundred. Yeah. yeah, wow. So that, he had a nice long life too. That's great. Yeah, yeah. ninety nine, officially ninety nine. There we go. Yeah, and um, yeah, and you can just—it's—it's it's a really neat piece. Um, mm. I was so glad because I just you know when I'm doing these searches and things, I just type in newsreel 1947 and see what it pops up that looks interesting. And when I saw that one, I was like, oh, that would be really interesting, especially, you know, with everybody saying that, unfortunately, she probably is getting to an age where she's going to pass on sometime in the relatively near future. And then we'll have a new king of England at that point. Um, and, and they won't be king for as long as she was queen. I mean, pretty much guaranteed because they, they'll be older when they're getting it. It looks like it'd be uh, Prince Charles, I believe, who will be assumed being king. Uh, for a while there, certainly, they were saying maybe it would skip his him and, and go down to his son or something. Yeah. Uh, because of some of the controversy that he was involved with and so forth, but it seems like... But there have been suggestions from uh, from the, the royals that uh, she might hand over the reins to him uh, before she dies. Correct. Uh, Which she can do. I mean, other they've done that before, right? Sure. In history, sometimes that happens. Sometimes it's the death of the person. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and her. Let me see if I remember this right. Her, was it her father who became king because his brother abdicated? Yeah, I think so. yes. Um, and so, if that happens, well, as you say, he's already Charles is in his seventies already. So yeah, he's probably not going to live to be one hundred and fifty. And so no, I don't think so. <laughs> Or have that long reign if, if in fact he becomes more power to him if he can. Hey, hey. <laughs> <laughs> I, I have always found it fascinating how fascinated Americans are with um, the royal family. Oh sure, it's uh, you know this is a country that we that we fought a revolution to get away from. <laughs> yeah, and yet we uh, what's the expression? I just can't quit you. Which is that's right. Can't seem that's right. To, to let them go. No, and I, in well, some ways, I think we're Americans just so interested in the monarchy and how it works. Yeah, and it's so interesting that we haven't had a transition 
since 1952. So, I mean, since oh, before right. a lot of us were born. That's right. We've never had it at transit. So even I was not alive at the time. <laughs> see, look at that. That's getting back there a little way. So yes, but but the uh, but the fact that we'll have, I think I think that will really bring it up to the in the public conscience of where we're talking about it and things. Yeah. Kind of like certainly when Charles and Diana got married, it was like wow, that was everywhere. And I think uh, I think that will be a similar thing to when the transition happens if you know i know nothing about anything but i just draw my ideas but to me it would even uh, if i was a king or queen of england or whatever i would think it'd be pretty cool to pass it on while you're still there to like be at the ceremony and watch your son or daughter or whoever it is that become the next queen king um you know versus waiting till your death but you know, I. It seems like, as far as I can tell, more of them have waited till their death than than have resigned early and passed it on. Um, it, it's probably one of those things where everybody thinks they're going to live forever anyway, and so you just think, oh, I'll pass it on next year, next year, and then all of a sudden the person dies. Um, so who knows how that all works out? But we'll see. We'll see what's going to happen with that. But a fun thing to to see the wedding, to see how young they are. Um, I'm really delighted for them that they were able to get married in 47 and she didn't have to assume being queen until 1952. So they had a number of years together as a couple to work through the normal things you have to in the beginning of a marriage before they, they had uh, her being queen thrust upon her and had to change the dynamic of the relationship probably for the rest of her life um, to deal with the fact that you know, being queen probably comes first and then being the wife becomes second. And uh, and that, that would be tough for a lot of people. And I think, as far as I can tell, Philip handled it really well um, with the way that all came about. Um, anyway, so... In, in fairness, it's, it's not that tough a gig. You know, you live in yeah. a castle. You have everything and everyone at your beck and call. Yes. And... Uh, that's, I think that's not how that expression is. It's beck and call, isn't it? Anyway, yes, they have they have everything they want. I watched a lot of Lauren Beck and Call's movies. But you're right. I mean, of course, you've got you've you've got the whole world watching you. Yes. And it is nice to have a little bit of a of a uh, if not private, at least not quite right. as as high focused um, for those early years. Well, Terry, you're one of my favorite historian sort of folks that have lots of history in their pocket. Do you know, because when I look at it, I don't know a lot, and, and I, but I look at it and I say, well, certainly back when we were splitting off um, to become our own country, it sure seemed like the king was in charge of that country. Like there wasn't a prime minister in charge and the king was just a figurehead. When did it sort of segue off into where there was the king, the king and queens were more like figureheadish and 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 sort of uh, doing, like you said, ceremonials and, and things like that, whereas the prime minister really ran the country? I would yeah. assume I, that was in the. I, I would I would say it is either um, either Elizabeth, this current monarch, yeah. or her father. Okay. Um, 
So because, fairly recent. I mean, really, I mean yeah, because prior, picture of things. Yeah. Because certainly prior to uh, to King George, um, the 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 monarch had. I mean, was not involved in the day to day. Even Queen Victoria, as, as right. involved as she was, was not making day to day government decisions. Right. But she had a lot more to say. She said a lot more, and 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 did have more direct influence on the affairs of her government um, than Elizabeth has ever had. Yeah. And I think even her father was not that involved in the day to day affairs of state but it's been a long time coming it's it, they're not i mean they are figureheads in the sense that uh, the the functions of government the appointing of ministers and and decisions about war and peace and you know the, how to handle the money all those things are done by right. the elected officials because i don't think she could look at somebody that was you know coming there to take pictures and get annoyed at what camera they're using and say off with that person's head and then they would just chop the person's head off i kind of think they would kind of question hmm do we do that anymore <laughs> I, I think i think you can go back to uh the story of thomas Becket, where the monarch says who will rid me of this meddlesome priest and he's not exactly saying go kill this guy yeah <laughs> but you know if Everybody seems to know what the monarch wants. Yes. <laughs> and so whether they say it, it or not, really happens, so. I think they get what they want. <laughs> Very good. Very good. <laughs> anyway, so we hope you're going to enjoy that piece. Um, we'll move on. Uh, then after that, um, I think I'll be presenting the serial, uh, and the serial is uh, Son of Zorro. So a lot of times it, for us, when we look at, son of Zorro or son of whoever, sometimes it is that, that it truly is supposed to be the son, the next generation sort of thing. Other times they would use that terminology in the past if they were having a sequel to a film or a book or a, in this case, a cliffhanger serial thing uh, and, and say, that just means it's like part two of, of that. It's like, it's like the next phase. And so um, certainly uh, Mad Magazine, when they were making books, I remember the second book was called Son of Mad. And so, uh, but you just don't see that. That terminology is just not used much anymore. You don't have, we didn't have Jaws and then Son of Jaws, or we didn't, we don't have Star Wars and Son of Star Wars. Um, but, you know, it, it, that's just to kind of tell you that's where the terminology came from. But I thought you might enjoy a swashbuckling kind of adventure, and that's what that is. And uh, we'll do a link to all twelve so that you you can watch the whole thing if you if you get interested in this and say, "Wow, that was really good," then you can watch so, the whole thing. Yeah. So, Dale, since you opened the door, I've got to ask a question. Sure. Um, who's your favorite Zorro? My favorite Zorro? Huh. Well, I, I I'd have to say it's it's the Disney. Television Zorro, which was played by the guy Guy Williams, who was, who, who later became uh, Lost in Space dad, and I fell in love with him, like in Lost in Space, and was like, oh, he's such a cool dad, and all this stuff. And then when I saw that he was also Zorro, it made me love him as Zorro. So that had to be my favorite, but uh, certainly not the most like authentic one or whatever you want to want to say about him. Um, I did see there was an interesting. When he was going for the part, 
in, in Lost in Space. Somewhere, in, I think on YouTube, they have his like supposedly his his screen test, but he he's sitting there smoking a cigarette and like, yeah, I think uh, I'd be interested in doing this part. If that's what you guys want me to do, and sure, I can be a dad. Damn it, and whatever. And he just seems completely different than than how I expected him to be off camera, you know. And so, but. But it's interesting, and I think at the time he might have even had his Zorro mustache going on and things, and 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 because he he went essentially, I think, almost right from Zorro into Lost in Space, or maybe there was a year gap in there, but not much. Um, he did Zorro, I think, for two seasons, and then uh, and then that show got canceled or whatever, and then he went on to Lost in Space. But anyway, that's my favorite. Who is? Of course, Antonio Banderas is also very good. And I like oh, that's right. There's quite a bit. And and I, I did when we when his version of Zorro came out, I watched it with my wife and she loved it. I mean, she loved Antonio Banderas too. So but uh but I thought that was just a great film that they were in. But go ahead. Who is your favorite? Oh, probably Douglas Fairbanks. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Gotta go old school. Go old school, yep, yep, yeah. I totally do that. Yeah, yeah. Douglas Fairbanks. Such a good actor, and, and he does such great things, and he's such a physical presence. Um, yeah, no, I totally get it. Makes more sense. I'm I'm prouder of yours than Emma Bond. <laughs> but I but I did watch going. That's my Zorro. <laughs> but I but I did watch Guy Williams growing up too. It, yeah. You know. <laughs> okay. <There> you go. <laughs> anyway, so um, enjoy Zorro as well, and uh, Son of Zorro, I guess, and uh, then uh, we'll the cartoon we're going to feature is again from 1947 everything we're featuring is from 1947 all right so we hope you're going to enjoy that and then we get to our feature presentation and our feature presentation tonight like i said is orson wells rita hayworth in a just a a very you know a, a film i'd never seen before before this week i watched it and i just uh i bumbled into it last week and just looked at the i, I didn't even i it was orson it was rita hayworth it had good reviews as far as I could tell. And the picture quality of it was really nice on YouTube. So I was like, oh, let's do that one. So and then I watched it this week. Um, I will say it made me feel a little, I had to analyze myself a little bit and go, okay, you're not walking the walk that you always tell people to walk, Daryl. So you got to get with this program. So, because I was watching Orson and hearing him do his accent was pulling me out of the thing but I thought I was I'd always said I hate it when actors get stereotyped and they feel like they can only do one thing Orson refused refused to get stereotyped would do whatever he wanted to do certainly in his in his Mercury Theater he would use lots of different voices and things because you sort of say to yourself you're Orson Welles use your own normal voice for anything you do because it's such a treat for all of us but to have him go through and change his voice throughout this performance was uh was fine but i just had to kind of get used to it as i was going through it and that's my own issue that's not orson orson did a, i thought orson did a pretty good job with his with the the accent he chose and things it's not like he would fall out of the accent constantly i don't think i think he was pretty good with it on the other hand I watch shows where I think somebody is doing a good accent. Other people tell me, oh, they drop the accent all the time and they, they you know, and, and they, they go in and out of the accent or whatever. 
I don't really notice those things. I just get into the show and, and things. But um, the other piece, that, and I'm going to let Terry go in here in a second, but the other thing was towards the end, and I don't want to give away the ending or anything, but they're um, in a Hall of Mirrors, and it was a really cool segment in the Hall of Mirrors and really uh, just had uh, Orson be able to, as a director, to be able to, to bring something to the screen that's really powerful and almost uh, Hitchcockian in some ways and things. And sometimes Orson, what, Orson and Hitchcock were so much in the same vein sometimes. Uh, I'm just I'm delightful to watch anything that either of them makes. Uh, and, and that... And, and when we've seen Hall of Mirrors in other films, and I don't know if, they, if they're taking from this one or which film kind of started the Hall of Mirrors thing, but certainly uh, what comes to my mind is um, Bruce Lee's final film in, uh, at least his final formally released film or whatever, which was Enter the Dragon. Um, and there's a whole Hall of Mirrors thing in there where they're chasing each other through a Hall of Mirrors and they're always thinking they're attacking each other, but they're really just attacking a mirror. And, and that's a, a fun, they take it even further than this takes it. But I thought that was interesting. But anyway, Terry, what has stood out for you in this film? Well, first of all, it had been a while since I originally saw The Lady from Shanghai. Yeah. Uh, so I did watch it again uh, yesterday. Good. And a bunch of things struck me. Uh, and I want to give you a little bit of background on the making of this movie. But first, yeah, just in, in keeping with what you said, uh, for me, this was actually three movies. Okay. There was the the um, the film noir with uh, you know uh, the 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 love story or the on again off again the tension you know all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Then there was the the trial scene, which I thought was more of a comedy than a drama. Yes. And then finally, there was the uh, the Hall of Mirrors, you know, in the in the funhouse at the end and uh that to me was kind of like an action film yeah um and and all three of these elements take place throughout the movie yes but, but in in large terms in those three spots that's where they they most struck me as for wells irish brogue um a lot of people didn't like it i thought he did a tremendous job with it yeah and and it took me a moment before I realized, because it's Orson Welles, that it was that it was an accent because because there's Welles in there, yeah, and and he is. It's all it's always um, you, you can't not listen to Orson Welles. It is it's almost hypnotic. Yes. So when he played Michael O'Hara, he was yes he was Orson Welles, but he embodied this this character. character. Yeah. It's also important to note in 1947 that Orson Welles was still in, in you know pretty fit shape. Yeah. And even though I'm sure there were there was a stuntman used in, in some of the, the action scenes, um, he did a lot of his own uh, yes. his, or at least a fair amount of his own stunt work in this. And um, so so that was right. uh, that's one of the big things that caught my attention. But well, I want to say he wrote and directed the thing too. Well, he didn't get directing he, credit. He, he, one of the one of the writers. It was a screenplay and production. I think was the credit he was given. Yeah, he, he was. Wasn't, wasn't he wasn't credited. He he. What I read was that he directed. Un, he was the uncredited director of. That's it. right. Yeah. That's right. No one. No one got a director credit. 
Yes, but somebody had to be directing it. <laughs> yeah, and and that raises an, another interesting question, which is, you know, no no criticism of Orson Welles, the the great filmmaker, the man responsible for Citizen Kane, arguably one of the greatest motion pictures ever. But there were there were shots in this film, particularly close-ups of Welles, that looked out of focus to me, and and not in a good way. They weren't, right. it wasn't soft focus, it was out of focus. Bad focus. <laughs> Bad focus. And and I had to wonder whether that's because Wells was directing and and I can't remember who the, the cinematographer was, but it just that that struck me as odd. At which is which time, is really interesting in that I read that this film was noted for its cinematography, or maybe went up and got I was about to say at the same time, the cinematography overall was amazing. Yeah. I think on a par with Citizen Kane. In fact, in some ways, this movie reminds me of Citizen Kane. Kane. I was going to say the same thing, yeah. yeah. But I want to say a little bit about the, the making of this film, sure. the background. Um, the, the year before, the summer of 1946, uh, it's yeah. a pity that Vincent isn't here because he could tell us so much more oh, I know. about this. But Wells was still making his big broad, his Broadway colossal um, around the world in 80 days. And he had money problems and he was running out of cash. And the story is that Wells stumbled upon the book that this movie is based on. Uh, I always forget the title of it. Um, yeah, it's, it's a completely different title. It's like, yeah. I saw that too and I was like, oh. See if I can find it. Different. Uh, based on better. Uh, it's just yeah, based different. on If I Die Before I Wake. Yeah. 1938 novel written by Raymond Sherwood King. And Which so I kind of like that title better if they would have just it kept is a better title. title. In fact, they went through several titles uh, before they settled on The Lady from Shanghai. Lady from Shanghai is a good title. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but but Wells was 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 uh, running out of money for his show. So he apparently stumbled upon this book and he got in touch with Harry Cohn, I think, from Columbia. Right. And said, I need $55,000, which coincidentally was the amount of money he needed to keep the show running, to keep the doors open on Broadway. Yeah. And so, uh, so Cohn sent him the money. Wow. <laughs> and that's how he was able to, to keep the show going. Right. Meanwhile, he's scrambling to, to get this film put together. Right. And Orson Welles being Orson Welles, he had lots of huge fights with the studio. Sure. Um, and most notoriously about money. And my favorite story about the making of this movie is that Wells decided he needed to repaint one of the sets. And he made this decision on like a Friday night. Mm -hmm. So he called the head of production, yeah. um, whose name was uh, John Fear, spelled F-I-E-R. We called Fear, and he said, uh, "I need to. I need a crew to repaint the, the set." And Th Fear it's said, a mighty fine Orson impression, by the way. <laughs> he said, "He said no. It, you, you realize it's a weekend. How much we will have to pay union painters to do this, right? And probably three times as much or more." Yeah, yeah. yeah. So Wells and and some of his friends broke into the studio. They broke it. They sneaked into the studio and painted. They painted it themselves. There you go. And they hung a sign that said, 
the only thing we have to fear is fear, F-I-E-R. <laughs> but wait, there's more. The union painters were furious. Of course. They took their job. a union job, and they were supposed to, you know, if there's any painting to be done, it's the union painters yeah. who will yeah. do the painting. And so they threatened to go on strike and to picket the, the studio and to right. shut down not just production of this movie, to all shut down all production at Columbia. Oh, my gosh. Well, that was not okay. So Fear had to pay these guys, even though they didn't do the painting. Right. They had to pay them for the painting that As was As though done. they had painted. But they did a little bit of painting. What they painted was a sign that said, all's well that ends wells. <laughs> <laughs> That is a great story. It's a wonderful story. The other, the other big bit of background for this movie is Rita Hayworth's hair. Yeah. Famous, long, dark hair. Yeah. Well, as we are about to see, her yeah. hair was cut short and, and bleached blonde. Blonde, yeah. And the studio was very worried that this would not be good for her and not be good for the, the film and ultimately for the studio but they made a lot of money on this movie so yeah i, I think that all, was a good that turned out to be a good bet. all's well that ends wells <laughs> uh, except that all all it, it also ended the uh, the marriage of uh, the wells correct because i think it was a couple weeks later that they got divorced which is interesting because so often doing a movie together seems to draw people together right yeah I suppose him being the direct, you know, if he's doing everything, he's probably doesn't feel like he's 100% there with her. Whereas if you have two actors that are acting in scenes together, and then when they're done with their scenes, have more time together, you can see how that would draw people together. Yeah. This uh, was also a grueling project. They, they went all over the place. They were down in Mexico. They were in San Francisco. Um, and, and Wells, again, notoriously was uh, a... A very difficult director for a lot of people yeah. to work with. Right. That said, uh, if you look at the the cast, a lot of old, great old radio actors are, are yeah in yeah movie, including um, uh, Everett Sloan. Sloan, I was going to say Sloan. He takes with him wherever he goes, sort of. Yeah, and yeah. and there were a few others from from uh, the radio days who uh, yep. were uh, starring in this picture. Right, and, and he often and, did that with his pictures. Had right were from his radio show. And I will say, having seen it now twice. Um, it's it is a compelling movie with all yeah. of these all the nitpicking that we do here. Yes. If you if you now if you haven't seen the movie before, yes. if you take everything that we've said and throw it away and yes. just yes. watch the a movie, it is an amazing hour and a half. I will a hundred percent agree with that, and I think it's uh, when you described it as three different movies kind of put together. That's a good description, but they're three different movies that work well together. Oh yeah, and you don't often see folks be able to jump into humor, jump out of humor, have drama, have have suspense all mixed together. And this is a really nice piece that somehow manages to balance all that. And then I got to say, for Rita Hayworth, I mean, she was the just wonderful performer and just did a great job in in many films. But in this film, she really brings in a nice performance. I really enjoyed her in this film. Um, and sometimes I was frustrated with her, but that's what you need. That's what you're supposed to be with, with her character and things. So it all worked beautifully. And 
Orson is probably at his most um, endearing or where you kind of empathize with his character more than more than a lot of times you do with with Orson. So yeah, I, I, an enjoyable film. So have a great night at the movies and uh, we'll be back to do, I've got a couple more ideas in my head for a couple more night at the movies and then I'll have to scour YouTube for other uh, movies that are out there and things. But luckily YouTube has a decent uh, variety of movies that are pretty good. I mean, you're not going to get like I can't really, if I'm going to present a movie, I can't really present um, like a, a Alfred Hitchcock movie or something. They're they're going to be more your not even not even your B movies. They're your A movies, but they're not uh, maybe as well known. Which I think is better anyway, because then we can talk about them and bring you a, a movie that like this one. I mean, I don't know. I don't hear a lot of people talk about this film. Uh, and yet they should be. And so maybe they will now. We'll bring it to the forefront. There we go. Thanks, Terry, for everything. You. Fantastic. And everybody enjoy this wonderful film. Enjoy this whole night at the movies. Oh, and in the notes, um, not the notes. I mean, when if you leave comments, whether on my podcast or on YouTube, uh, tell me of movies, especially if you know they're available on YouTube, that you think, hey, this movie deserves this focus that you guys do. And I'd love to do that. Or a serial or a cartoon or whatever it is that you think we should bring you. Tell us that. So thanks so much. Thanks, Terry, again. Thanks. Bye, everybody. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Delicious things to eat. The popcorn can't be beat. The sparkling drinks are just dandy. The chocolate bars and the candy. So let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. Let's all go to the lobby. past is full of hidden chapters. Stories of adventure and romance that never reached the school book. Sixty pounds and sixpence for this rare gem. Smile, you little scut. Do I hear another bid? Yes. Sixty-five. And sixpence. Gary Cooper as Captain Christopher Holden of the Virginia Militia, scouting the unknown as the Indian war belt passed from tribe to tribe, setting the border ablaze. He's dead. I've got the belt. Paulette Goddard as Abby Hale, beautiful prize in the gamble for an empire of furs and forests. You're not a man. You're a walking loaded rifle with one bloodthirsty purpose to kill God. You haven't blood in your veins, you've gunpowder. Unconquered is a story that sweeps you through many exciting backgrounds. The lusty fun of the Peakstown Fair, the brave finery of the king's birthday ball on the edge of the wilderness. The savage ritual of Gayasuda's torture stake. The race through the rapids with barbed fury behind and thundering disaster ahead. The death march of the famed Black Watch to relieve Fort Pitt. The battle for survival as Shawnee arrows and Seneca fireballs 
plane through the summer night. can take care of himself. Nice night for it, ain't it, Mr. O'Hara? You didn't answer me, Mr. O'Hara. You ought to speak when you're spoken to. I'd hate to have to report you to the lady's husband. I said it's a nice night for it. Hey, Mike, if you'll pardon me this intrusion, there's a couple of police officers out here. Cops. I don't speak their language, see? And they want me to identify this guy. What's the Spanish for drunken bum? Mrs. Bannister, can you think of any reason why your husband would want to hire a divorce detective other than to watch you? I object! As a matter of fact, you and Michael O'Hara have kissed each other, haven't you? To name one occasion, you were seen in the aquarium of this city kissing each other. Do you deny that? No. No further questions. We ought to wait till after you graduate. I don't. It's only a month. Janet, a month. Please. Sorry. I personally consider us engaged as of now. Congratulations. David, no. Look, you can say yes in a taxi. I have a 2.30 appointment I'm in your... staying right here. Oh? Afraid you'll say yes? I'll see you tonight at Brandon's party. Okay. You can say yes, sir, just as well as in a taxi. Goodbye, darling. Bye. That's the last time she ever saw him alive. And that's the last time you'll ever see him alive. What happened to David Kentley changed my life completely and the lives of seven others. Janet Walker, Henry Kentley, the boy's father, his aunt, Mrs. Atwater, his best friend, Kenneth Lawrence, a housekeeper named Mrs. Wilson, 
and the two who were responsible for everything, Brandon Shaw and Philip Morgan. Guard through throngs estimated at two million, the drabness of life is forgotten. Everything is rationed but cheers, and the crowd really goes wild. There are few processions in London in which history may not repeat itself. As Princess Elizabeth passes history's landmarks, there is one which is particularly significant. For here is Victoria Memorial to Elizabeth's great-great-grandmother, who a hundred years ago wed her prince consort and gave her name to Britain's golden era. And the statue of good Queen Vic may well be smiling today. However long Elizabeth and Philip may reign over Britain in years to come, never will they know a moment when they will be as close to the man in the street as now. And in the exuberance of the occasion, the enormous crowd surges forward. On the balcony at Buckingham, where many kings and queens have appeared, Princess Elizabeth happily shares the supreme day of her life with her countrymen. Here is the complete picture of Britain's royal family on the great occasion. As with many another family, three generations are there to give their blessings. And so Elizabeth and Philip take their leave to attend the nuptial breakfast and reception. But no wedding story is complete without the gifts. From all parts of the earth have they come, representing the world's finest craftsmanship and the good wishes of scores of nations. Particularly beautiful is the crystalware, some of it from the United States Ambassador. And here is President Truman's gift, an exquisitely etched Steuben glass jar. Gorgeous as most of the gifts are, they are not all strictly ornamental. In fact, some of them are downright useful. 
picnic hamper from Sister Margaret is covered with alligator skin. The Swiss watchmakers sent one of their finest. From Burma and Bombay to Regent Street in London, jewels from governments and family have been showered on the bride. But again, no wedding story is complete without wedding pictures, and these are historic ones. Most important, of course, the bride and groom, who for the first time take precedence over a smiling and happy king and queen. To complete the collection, here is the wedding party. Bridesmaids and best man. Prettiest maid of all is little sister Margaret Rose. Fostered by long tradition and love of Britons for their reigning family, another milestone is passed in the succession of British rulers. joins Britain in wishing two young people long life, prosperity, and happiness as they embark on their new life. Maybe I should say Captain Stewart. Oh, let's forget the captain. It's plain Jeff Stewart now. Going to settle down and enjoy the peace. There ain't no peace in Fox County, Jeff. When all you able-bodied fellas are away to war, a bunch of crooked politicians got themselves elected and have been skinning the people right and left. I'm pulling out. It's a runaway. It's Kate Wells, the postmistress. Them crazy critters will kill her yet. trying to do. I had the team under control. I didn't need any help. Well, it didn't look that way to me. 
So I risked my neck to help you and get called down for my trouble. Oh, I, I'm awfully sorry. I was in a hurry. You see, the sheriff is selling my uncle's ranch for taxes, and I have the money to stop the sale, but barely time to get there. And when you cut in here and... You can still make it. Shove over. I got a bit of $600. Who'll give me seven? I'm asking for a bit of $700 for the whole shebang. Lock, stock, and barrel. Six hundred, who'll give me seven? Seven hundred. Seven hundred. Seven hundred, who'll give me eight? Seven hundred, who'll give me eight? Seven hundred and fifty. Seven hundred and fifty dollars, who'll give me eight? Seven fifty, who'll give me eight? Eight hundred dollars. Eight hundred dollars, gentlemen, Mr. Carter has just bid eight hundred dollars. Only eight hundred dollars for two sections of the finest grazing land in Box County. Look at that house. Look at that land. No telling how much this land is worth. Stop it. Stop him, Sheriff. Listen, uh, just give me five more minutes. Kate promised to be here with the money. Nothing doing. You've had due notice. 800, who'll give me nine? $1,000. Spot cash. $1,000 spot cash. Are you all done? $1,000. $1,000 once. $1,000 twice. Hold it. Here she comes. Stop it, Sheriff. That, that's Kate with the money. Sold to Lim Carter for $1,000. <laughs> Here's the tax money, Sheriff. I'm sorry, Kate. The sale's over. But surely if I pay the taxes... That's all up to Mr. Carter now. He's the legal owner. But you've got to give it back. This is my land. Not now, it isn't. I tell you, this is my land. It belongs to me. Just a minute. You know, buying this ranch didn't give you any right to manhandle the former owner. Is that right? Well, maybe you'd like some of the same. Don't butt in, Sheriff. I'll handle this. I want to see fair play. Get up. I'm not through with you yet. Oh, yes, you are. You're under arrest for disturbing the peace. But you can't do that, Sheriff. Put that gun away, Kate. Why, he struck the first blow. Is that right? Well, I'm striking the last one. If you've got anything to say, tell it to Judge Hyde. Stick out your hands. Lim Carter had just purchased the ranch strictly legal, Your Honor, when the defendant here assaulted him. Have you anything to say for yourself, young man? The sheriff should have his eyes examined, Your Honor. This is a court of law, not an optical clinic. Quite true, Your Honor. However, the facts are that this man Carter attacked me. I had every right to defend myself. Not under the circumstances. The sheriff was there. You could have appealed to him for protection instead of taking the law into your own hands. Your Honor, may I testify? I'm afraid not, Kate. Understand you took part in this affair, using a deadly weapon in a threatening manner. Now, the testimony of an accomplice is not admissible. As for you, young man, the court finds you guilty as charged. The fine will be $100. Why, I haven't that much on me, Your Honor. Sheriff will hold your horse and saddle until such a time as the fine is paid. 
Have you anything further to say, young man? Only that the thrashing I gave your friend Carter was worth the price. Clear <laughs> the court, Sheriff. stood in the jail when you had the chance. Too many witnesses. Jeff Stewart's as deadly as a rattler. He knows his law. Now, the chief got word a while ago that he was on his way back and warned me. He said Stewart had to be run out of the county before he found flaws in our organization. I don't like it. The chief sits back in an easy chair and gives orders. The rest of us take risks. Besides, running Stewart out of the county may be a man-sized job. That's right. But the chief didn't necessarily mean that Stewart had to leave under his own power. He might go out on a plank. Apparently, that bunch in the courthouse is pretty well organized. Can get away with anything. Their first move was to raise the property taxes so high that only a few could afford to pay them. The rest were sold out, like Uncle Louis. Nice game. That's only part of it. The only road across the mountains runs through Box County. So the official slapped a toll tax on every wagon using it. Their collection runs into thousands. Well, I still have my ranch. Maybe I can keep it in spite of them. Senor Jeff! You have come home! Pancho, it's good to see you. And you, senor. Miss Wells, I want you to meet Pancho, my friend and ranch foreman. Buenos dias, senorita. Hello, Pancho. Oh, senor, it's so good you've returned. The men have all been scared away, the cattle driven off, and soon they take your rancho. Outlaws? No, no, senor, the law himself, the sheriff, he come with a big piece of paper. He say, you no pay taxes, I take. So he takes to get my horses? Oh, no, senor. I take the horses and hide them in Lost Canyon, all except El Rey, your favorite. I have him here. Come, I show you. Fine job, Pancho. Right. Now we've got to figure out some legal way to get these crooks kicked out of office. But you cannot do that, senor. You must fight fire with fire. El Caballero Zorro must ride again. What does he mean? Well, Zorro was an ancestor of mine on my mother's side. When the politicians got to making things too tough for his friends, Zorro took the law into his own hands, became a sort of Robin Hood, settled things his own way. And you too can settle things, senor. You have a horse as swift as his. And in the old chest here are the clothes of Zorro. Well, it's a tempting idea, Poncho, but we'll stick to the legal methods as long as we can. But legal methods won't work. That's what he's trying to tell you. Judge Hyde and the others have complete control of the county. And we'll go over their heads. They can appeal to the state for an investigation. That won't be of any use. Unless the county authorities ask for help, the governor has no right to interfere in their affairs. But Zorro can interfere, senor. See, 
Here are his clothes, even to the hat and the mask. No, Pancho, we'll still stick to the law. I believe I know a way to break this crooked ring wide open. Daniels. How are you, Jeff? Glad to see you. I heard you were back. Goodness, you made a quick trip. Any luck? Oh, plenty. Uh, meet Mr. Stockton, Jeff. Well, how are you, Stockton? Howdy. You must have come here after I left. Yeah, he rode in on an old flea-bitten horse, with nothing in his pockets but his hands. And now he owns a half a dozen ranches or more, the lucky umbry. Lucky nothing. I worked hard for what I've got. Yep, he has. You've got to admit, he made his by hard work and honest dealing. Well, I'm glad to meet an honest citizen. Ones I've run up against so far wouldn't ask, say, an ounce of honesty to the ton. <laughs> <laughs> Jeff means to help straighten things out here in Box County. He's been to the capital to see what can be done about those high taxes and road toll. And something can be done. I have a franchise here from the governor to build a new wagon road through the mountains. Look. My road will cut off just before it hits the Box County line and swing out across the mountains through Davis County. And the sheriff collects no more tolls from our covered wagons. Oh, Jeff, that's splendid. Smart business. When do you start? First thing in the morning. There's enough equipment to get underway, loaded, and ready to leave railhead as soon as I get there. Well, I'll go with you. I know all of that mountain country pretty well, and I can help you pick the easiest route. Well, fine. Pancho's meeting us with the chuck wagon at Yellow Horse Crossing, and we can pick you up there. Well, I'll be getting along. I've got a lot of things to do. Not quite. Pancho isn't here yet. Well, did we wait? No. You'd better take my team and go ahead. I'll ride the ranch and see what's holding him up. All right. And keep going. We'll catch up with you. They beat me and take the horses. The sheriff? No, no, senor, the bandits. Now Zorro must ride again. Nothing doing. I'm a lawyer, not an outlaw. We'll get another chuck wagon and... Senor, you not understand. I hear the men talk. They go now to attack your wagons. They kill all your men. And Kate's on one of the wagons. See. Si. Saddle El Rey. Quick. See, si, senor. This'll do it. When they come through the cut, we'll let them have it. Are you ready, Pancho? See, si, Senor Zorro. Thank you. 
Say, boy, cakes of coal oil in the other wagon. Bring them over here. We'll blast them out of there. to go to showtime. I'm sorry, sir. This is a private mountain. But I only wanted... This a... mountain is reserved for patrons of drive-in theaters. But, 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 but It's I... a supply depot for all sorts of good things, which people can get at the snack bar, like soft drinks, hot dogs, good hot coffee, candy bars of all kinds delicious popcorn, and refreshing ice cream treats. But I am a patron of this drive-in. Well, why didn't you say so? Be our guest.
water. Water! Uh-uh. I wouldn't drink that, partner. Look what happened to me. Change the subject. Get ready. Set.
everybody sing. Now join in and sing loud if you're aiming to stay healthy. I'm an old cow Ach, hello there. Give the demonstration of my new invention, the goodies machine. Special for patrons of this drive-in, the machine turns out delumptious hot doggies one after the other. And thirst-quenching sodas also. Gives popcorn of the most tasty kind, plain and buttered. Candy too, crunchy and dandy. Steaming hot coffee and ice cream too. These goodies are a snack bar just waiting for you. start out to make a fool of myself, there's very little can stop me. If I'd known where it would end, I'd have never let anything start. If I had been in my right mind, that is. But once I'd seen her, once I'd seen her, I was not in my right mind for quite some time. 
Good evening, said I, thinking myself a very gay dog indeed. But here was a beautiful girl all by herself and me with plenty of time, nothing to do but get myself into trouble. Some people can smell danger. Not me. I asked her if she'd have a cigarette. It's my last one. I've been looking forward to it, so please don't disappoint me. But I don't smoke. That's how I found her. And from that moment on, I did not use my head very much, except to be thinking of her. But in the park in those days, the rough young fellas used to be staging hold-ups and the like. Help! Help! However, these young fellas were not professionals. And that's maybe the reason why I start out in this story a little bit like a hero which I most certainly am not. The cab driver was waking up. He was okay, so I borrowed his carriage to drive the lady home. In a short while, she recovered herself and brightened up. What were the things I found to tell her? To get her mind off the scare she'd had, you know, and to set her thinking as well of the brave fellow that had rescued her. Rosalie. Fair Rosalie. It's a name I'm after calling Rosalie? Why not? It's a gorgeous, romantic little name entirely. My name's Mike. <laughs> You're a character. I'm nothing more than a poor sailor man and him with the princess of Central Park riding along at his side, Princess Rosalie. I want to know... Where does the princess come from? I don't know why she should tell you, but... Well... Her parents were Russian. White Russian. You never heard of the place where she comes from. Would your highness care to gamble? Gamble? She's done it for a living. I bet you a dollar I've been to the place where you were born. Chifu. It's on the China coast. Chifu. It's the second wickedest city in the world. What's the first? Makayo, wouldn't you say so? I would. I worked there. You worked in Macayo. Here's your dollar. How do you rate Shanghai? I worked there, too. Yeah, as a gambler? Well... <laughs> Hope you were luckier tonight. You need more than luck in Shanghai. Do you know what? What? I bet I could drive the car from down there inside with you. There's a police car on the other road. No, we'd best get out of the park. The horse and car could make it too simple for the cops to be fighting us. You don't like them very much, do you, well, The cops, they can struggle along without our doing their work for them. Watch where you're going, Mike! Get that nag out of here! <laughs> now the cops are bound to pick us up. We'd best leave the cab here and walk. Whoa! You certainly don't like the police. I do not. My car's right there in the garage anyway. Tell me, Michael, is there some reason why the police don't like you? Well, they never put me in jail in America. You know, the nicest jails are in Australia. The worst are in Spain. What law did you break in Spain? I killed a man. Just now, you almost killed a girl. Is there a law against that? Try it. You won't like the jails in America. So they put you in jail for murder in this country? I didn't think so. There was a man killed his wife in Frisco last week. She'd gone to the icebox for a bit of supper. 
He thought she was a burglar, he said. He shot her five times in the head. Number 47. He had a good lawyer. Exactly. I saw his picture in the newspaper. Bainbridge or something. Bannister. Right, Arthur Bannister. It said he was the world's greatest criminal lawyer, like the world's greatest criminal. Some people think he Here's is. Here's your car, ma'am. Send the bill to my husband. If you're a sailor, Michael, there's a job for you. Would you like to work for me? I'd like it. I'm shipping out tomorrow. So are we, to the west coast by way of the canal. We're short a man on the crew. I'll make it worth your while. Could it be this you're looking for? You were smart to carry a gun, traveling alone in the park, but... But if you knew you had the gun in your bag, why throw away the bag? I meant for you to find it. I, I don't know how to shoot. It's easy. You just pull the trigger. Some dame, ain't she? Yeah, and some car. Evening, Mr. Grisby. Mr. Bannister sent it all the way from San Francisco. Just so she could have it here. Bannister? Arthur Bannister himself. Gee, some guys have all the luck. Personally, I don't like a girlfriend to have a husband. If she'll fool a husband, I figure she'll fool me. Now, New York is not as big a city as it pretends to be, so I spent the next day in the hiring hall, waiting for a ship. That way, big boob that I am, I thought I could escape her. SS American trainer. <laughs> Excuse me. I wonder if you could help me locate it. Mr. O'Hara. Michael O'Hara. Michael O'Hara? You mean Black Irish, the big hop to talk fancy? I don't know him myself. Black Irish? But... Yeah, I know him. Joe! Joe, call Michael O'Hara. Guy here wants to see him. Michael O'Hara, please step to the bulletin board. A man wants to see you. Shipmates? We was in Spain together. They started calling him Black Irish after what he did to them finks back in 39. Yeah, Mike's got a lot of blinding, but he knows how to hurt a man when he gets mad. You were asking for me. O'Hara? O'Hara. You're what they call an able-bodied seaman? Well, that's what they call it. You ever work on a yacht? No. I presume you can handle a speedboat. Well, I presume so. Do you drink? I beg your pardon. I asked you if you drink. Whatever's set in front of me doesn't have to be wholesome just so long as it's strong. <laughs> <laughs> Do you drink habitually? May I ask, mister, if you're extending the invitation? <laughs> Well, I guess it might as well be. Now, Mr. O'Hara, if you'll show me to the nearest bar, we'll sit down together and discuss your coming to work for me. My name is Bannister. Bannister? Uh-huh. Hey, boys, represent Mr. Arthur Bannister, the world's greatest criminal lawyer. He'll get you out of anything. It's Jake Bjornson and... Uh, Hi. Uh, Goldie, right? Time uh, Goldfish is the name. Glad Mr. to know you, Mr. Bannister's Bannister. wife sent him to get me. Isn't that right, Mr. Bannister? Now, Mr. Bannister is going to buy us all a few drinks. 
Well, I entertain myself by refusing to go to work for him. <laughs> Mike saved my wife's life. Oh? Yes, yeah. indeed. Would you mind inciting these clans number four? That's all we like to hear. Yeah. Mike's quite a hero. Quite a tough guy. Mister, there ain't no such thing. No such thing as tough guy. What's a tough guy? I don't know. A guy with an edge. What makes him sing better than me? Something in here. What makes it loud? A microphone. That's his edge. Edge? A gun or a knife, a nightstick or a razor, something the other guy ain't got. <laughs> yeah, a little extra reach on a punch, a set of brass knuckles, a stripe on the sleeve, a badge that says cop on it, a rock in your hand, or a bankroll in your pocket. That's an edge, brother. Without an edge, they ain't no tough guy. You hear that, Black Irish? It's true. Well, bear it in mind. Yeah, but what makes him sing prettier than you? Naturally, someone had to take Mr. Bannister home. I told myself I couldn't leave a helpless man lying unconscious in a saloon. Well, it was me that was unconscious, and he was exactly as helpless as a sleeping rattlesnake. Say, it's nice of you, Michael, to be so nice to me while I'm so drunk. <laughs> Staying. You've got to stay. Lover! Gonna be a real nice cruise. First the Panama Canal, then up the Mexican coast. We need a bosun, Danny boy. Ever done any sailing? A bit of it. I saw you last night at the garage, it was. Somebody else, Danny boy. Not me. Don't go. She needs you back. You stay. Hey, Mike. If you play your cards right, I think we can get a job for the both of us. I think we'll take it. And what was I, Mike O'Hara, doing on a luxury yacht, pleasure cruising in the sunny Caribbean Sea? Well, it's clear now I was chasing a married woman. But that's not the way I wanted to look at it, no. To be a real prize fathead like Mike O'Hara, you've got to swallow whole all the lies you can think up to tell yourself. Our little expedition spent some weeks in the West Indies, dawdling around, seeing the sights, laying in supplies, and getting into more trouble.
go swimming. I beg your pardon? I say, why don't you go swimming? I didn't bring a swimming suit along on the job, sir. You ought to the next time. There won't be a next time, sir. I'm quitting. Well, my trunk's out to fetch you. You'll find him in the locker in the cabin. I suppose you're wondering who I am, fella. I think I saw you in New York. I flew in this morning, by way of Havana. I'm George Grisby, you know. Grisby and Bannister. Where is everybody? On the shore? Well, most everybody. My partner, too? Mr. Bannister? That's right. And the lady? Oh. Mr. Bannister tells me you once killed a man. You are Michael, aren't you? That's right. I'm very interested in murders. Forgive me if I seem inquisitive, but... Where'd it happen? At Morsia. How'd you do it? Now, let me guess. You did it with your hands, didn't you? Does it ever bother you when you think about it? What'd you do to you? Nothing. You just killed him for the fun of it, eh? He was a Franco spy. There was a war on at the time. Then it wasn't murder, I suppose. Tell me, would you do it again? Would you mind killing another man? I'd kill another Franco spy. I was on a pro-Franco committee, fella, during the Spanish War. Would you kill me if I gave you the chance? I may give you the chance. Michael! Michael! Before Lee went ashore, did he make up some lunch for me? Yes, ma'am. Is there enough for two? I'm sure I don't know, sir. Why don't you ask Mrs. Bannister? You ask her. Do you like a good paste in the eye, sir? I wish you'd ask me to go swimming. She'll ask you. You wait and see. Will you help me? Give me a cigarette. I'm learning to smoke now. Ever since that night in the park, I... I've been getting the habit. Do all rich women play games like this? Call me Rosalie. Sure, if you need anything, you help yourself. I'm not what you think I am. I just try to be like that. Keep on trying. You might make it. 
Michael, I tried to tell you before, he isn't really a steward. He isn't a good one, that's sure. He's a detective, Michael. My husband hires him to watch me. He wants to fix it so I'll never be able to divorce him. He means so he can divorce you. I have dissent, Michael. He wants to cut me off without a cent. Does that matter so much? I shouldn't see his wood. Oh. I told you, sweet, you don't know anything about the world. Well, lately I've been rounding out my education. say this much for you, Arthur. When you give a picnic, it's a picnic. Time for another? Arthur. Time for another. You know what? Michael still what? insists. I beg your pardon? I said what? Michael still insists on quitting. Why shouldn't he? Oh, no. I think Arthur ought to try and make if him If he stay. wants to go, let But him. George likes to have him around, lover. Michael's so big and strong. Makes a good bodyguard for you. Isn't that what you said, George? I don't need a bodyguard. That's right. Not even a big, strong bodyguard, don't lover? Don't make another drink. Will an Irish brogue? You know, George thinks Michael's fallen for you, and that makes me unhappy. George hopes. But George is wrong again. Now, Arthur. George is always I didn't say wrong. anything about Make Michael and Elsa. Drink, George. Another grisly special coming up. You know, you're a stupid fool, George. But you ought to realize I don't mind it a bit if Michael's in love with my wife. He's young. She's young. He's strong. It's beautiful. Sit down, darling. Where's your sense of humor? I don't have to listen to you talk like that. Oh, yes, you do, lover. Now, Arthur, you, you leave Elsa alone. Come to think of it, why doesn't Michael want to work for us? Why should he? Why should anyone want to live around us? Where's his sense of adventure? Broom! Broom! Excuse me, sir. He's over there eating. Tell Michael to step over here for a moment. Aye, sir. Hey, Mike! They want to see you over there. Mr. Bannister and them. My wife's lost his sense of humor, Michael, and you've lost your sense of adventure. Sit down and have a drink. Give him a drink, George. And don't look so chocked. Michael may not be in the social register, but then neither are you anymore. Is this what you folks do for amusement in the evenings? Sit around toasting marshmallows and call each other names? Sure, if you're so anxious for me to join the game, I'd be glad to. I can think of a few names I'd like to be calling you myself. Oh, but Michael, that isn't fair. You're bound to lose the contest. We'll have to give you a handicap, Michael. 
<laughs> you should know what George knows about me, for instance, if you really want to call me names. And Michael, if you think George's story is interesting, you ought to hear the one about how Elsa got to be my wife. Do you want me to tell him what you've got on me, Arthur? Do you know, once, half the hump of Brazil, I saw the ocean so darkened with blood it was black, and the sun fainting away over the lip of the sky. We'd put in at Fortaleza, but a few of us had lines out for a bit of idle fishing. It was me who had the first strike. A shark it was. Then there was another, and another shark again. It's all about the sea was made of sharks, and more sharks still, and no water at all. My shark had torn himself from the hook, and the center, maybe the stain it was, and him bleeding his life away, drove the rest of them mad. Then the beasts took to eating each other. In their frenzy, they ate at themselves. You could feel the lust of murder like a wind stinging your eyes. And you could smell the death reeking up out of the sea. I never saw anything worse until this little picnic tonight. And you know, there wasn't one of them sharks in the whole crazy pack that survived. I believe in you now. Yours, that's the first time anyone ever thought enough of you to call you a shark. You're a good liar, you'd be flattered. <laughs> I'm sure I don't know, sir. She adores it here in Acapulco. So do I. Yeah, but it's uh, nice and quaint. But what I want to know is when are we going to get back to Frisco? Mind walking with me, fellow? I know all the best places. You might enjoy it. I want to make you a proposition. The beach, you mean, or the tourists? Everything. That is a fair face to the land, surely, but you can't hide the hunger and guilt. It's a bright, guilty world. Darling, of course you pay me. What's your guess, Michael? Think the world's coming to an end? There was a start to the world sometime, so I guess there'd be a stop. It's coming, you know. Hmm? Oh, yeah. Got to come. First the big cities, then maybe even this. It's just got to come. I prefer to be somewhere else, and it does. I will be. That's what I need you for, Michael. To see to it that I'm not around. 
How'd you like $5,000? What? That's what I said, $5,000, fella. And what do I have to do for it? I'll fill in the details later. Meanwhile, think it over, Michael. It's $5,000. It's yours. All you have to do is kill somebody. Who, Mr. Grisby? I'm particular who I murdered. Good boy. You know, I wouldn't like to kill just anybody. Is it someone I know? Oh, yeah. But you'll never guess. I give up. It's me. I'm perfectly sober, Michael. I'm willing to pay $5,000 if the job is well done. This is a straightforward business proposition. I want you to kill me. So long, fella. <laughs> George yesterday. I did. Did he say anything about us? He's afraid the world's going to explode. He talks about suicide. I've thought of that sometimes. Suicide? Do you think it's wrong, Michael? I don't know. Would you kill yourself if you had to? I don't know. I've looked at those pills so many times. Pills? The ones my husband takes to kill the pain. And wondered if enough of them would kill my pain. The pain of just being alive? Mr. Grisby wants to be cured of that pain. He wants me to cure him. Mr. Grisby wants me to kill Mr. Grisby. Sure, he's out of his mind. He's not sane. Neither is Arthur. Oh, your husband can take care of himself. What do you want? Beautiful moon. Nice night for it, ain't it, Mr. O'Hara? You didn't answer me, Mr. O'Hara. You ought to speak when you're spoken to. I'd hate to have to report you to the lady's husband. I said it's a nice night for it. Oh. I tried it. 
Everything's bad, Michael. Everything. You can't escape it or fight it. You've got to get along with it. Deal with it. Make terms. You're such a foolish night errant, Michael. You're big and strong, but you just don't know how to take care of yourself. So how could you take care of me? Mike! Mike! Hey, Mike! If you'll pardon me this intrusion, there's a couple of police officers out here. Cops. I don't speak their language, see? And they want me to identify this guy. What's the Spanish for drunken bum? It was early October when we made San Francisco and dropped anchor across the bay from the city in Sausalito. It had been a most interesting cruise. All very rich and rare and strange. But I had had no stomach for it. To begin with, living on a hook takes away your appetite. You've no taste for any pleasure at all but the one that's burning in you. But even without an appetite, I had learned it's quite amazing how much a fool like me can swallow. Please, Michael, be careful. The car's down there. Mr. Bannister's waiting to take you into the city. To San Francisco. But you're not going with him. You're going with me. Michael. You think I can't take care of you? You think I'd be after running off with you to a desert island to eat berries and goat's milk? And I'd have to take in washing to support you. Hello, kiddies. There's George. How would you say $5,000 to get us started? We've got a date with a couple of beers, fella. Arthur was asking for you. He wondered where you'd gone. I won't tell him. Answer my question. Five thousand dollars. Goodbye, Michael. Can we start on that? Would you have to take in Washington on five thousand dollars? I suppose you're wondering what's behind my little proposition. None of your business, actually, but since we're what you might call partners in crime, I might as well tell you that the firm of Bannister and Grisby is insured against the death of either partner. That means if one of us dies, the other stands to get a lot of money. Thanks. Now leave us alone. Yes, sir. Like some other people we both know, I'm not very happily married. And another thing, frankly, I don't want to be within a thousand miles of that city or any other city when they start dropping those bombs. Michael, there's been a suggestion we drive you into town. Want a beer before you go? I'll be waiting with Mrs. Bannister in the car. Better meet me in my office. Make it late tonight. What for? Five thousand dollars. That ought to take a girl and a sailor on quite a nice little trip. I'll meet you at your office. Do. It's a little paper I'd like you to sign. It's nothing very binding or important, really. Just a confession of murder. Here's to crime. I, 
Shisha, I meet you at aquarium. Nine o'clock before many people there. The aquarium? Oh, uh, if you ever need a good lawyer, Michael, let me know. I, Michael O'Hara, in order to live in peace with my God, to freely make the following confession. On the evening of August 9th, that's tomorrow night, fella, I shot and killed Mr. George Grisby, placing his dead corpse in the Sausalito Bay. Just a minute, uh, what you reading there? Am I supposed to have written it? <laughs> it's your confession. This is the easiest 5,000 you're ever gonna earn, fella. Why don't you do it yourself? Commit suicide? Me? Don't be silly. <laughs> suicide is against the law. We're not going to break the law. This is going to be murder, and it's going to be legal. I want to live, but I want to vanish. I want to go away and change my name and never be heard of again. But that costs money, and it isn't easy nowadays. If they're looking for you, they'll find you, unless they think you're dead. They'll find you even on the smallest island in the South Seas. That's where I'm going to be, fellow, on that smallest island. I'll mail the rest to you after the murder. <laughs> but I want to live on that island in peace. That won't be possible unless the world is satisfied I don't exist. You know, the law is a funny thing, fellow. The state of California will say I'm dead. Officially dead. Somebody will say they murdered me. <laughs> That's what I'm paying you for. To murder you? Say you did. Or what happens to you, really? No, I disappear. What happens to me? Nothing. <laughs> That's the joker. You swear you killed me, but you can't be arrested. That's the law. Look it up for yourself. There's no such thing as homicide unless they find a corpse. It just isn't murder if they don't find a body. According to the law, I'm dead if you say you murdered me. But you're not a murderer unless I'm dead. <laughs> Silly, isn't it? I've never seen an aquarium. Would you show me about? I couldn't think where else we could meet. Only tourists come here and school children. And lovers. Oh, Michael. Fair Rosalie. You love me very much. I do. Do you still want to take me away with you? Why do you ask me that? Tell me where we'll go, Michael. Will you carry me off with you into the sunrise? Stop tormenting me. I'll take proper care of you. You won't starve. I don't care where it is, Michael. Just take me there. Take me quick. Take me. I want you to worry about us, Rosalina. Oh, Michael, I I'm making arrangements. The things you said yesterday about... about money. You didn't sound like... like you. You're not going to try anything foolish, are you? I'm afraid so. Something very foolish indeed. I, Michael O'Hara, in order to live in peace with my God, do freely make the following confession. Read the last part. That explains the whole of it. 
We arrived at the boat landing at approximately 10.20. Mr. Grisby said he heard a sound, something suspicious. He said he was frightened of a holdup and asked me to get the gun out of the side pocket of the car just in case. I reached in and got the gun, but I had hardly taken hold of it when the gun went off by accident in my hand. Then I saw that Mr. Grisby was all covered with blood. It took me a minute to realize that Mr. Grisby was dead, to realize that I, Michael O'Hara, had killed him. But I don't understand, Michael. What were you doing with George in Sausalito? He says Mr. Grisby wants to spend the night on the yacht and asked me to drive him there. And that's what I killed him. You see, with the, with the rough tide there is in the bay, they wouldn't recover the body if there was one. You don't understand, darling. He isn't dead yet. Grisby's alive. He won't be murdered till tonight. Is that foolish enough for you? My husband wrote that thing and got you to sign it for him. It's one of those famous Bannister tricks. No, it's Grisby's idea. It seems, it seems Mr. Grisby wants to disappear. And this is a scheme of his to get himself declared dead. There's more to it than that, Michael. I don't know what, but there's more. It's a trap of some kind. You meet George tonight, just as he arranged. Go with him to Sausalito and, and do whatever crazy nonsense he asks you to do. As long as nobody gets hurt, it won't matter. But don't let him out of your sight. Maybe George isn't as big a fool as he seems to be, but I'll swear my husband's behind this whole thing. Oh, Michael, why did you let yourself get dragged into it? Sure, because I'm a fool, a deliberate, intentional fool. And that's the worst kind. Oh, didn't you know? Yes, my beloved, my beloved fool. I know. I don't think there's anybody home. Just broom. Mr. Bannister's in the city, and Mrs. Bannister, I think, went to the movies. Better wait for me in the kitchen. Okay. Make some coffee. We'll both need it. I've got things to attend to. wonder am I the only one that's on to you and her? Who? Nobody else seems to guess you're sweet on her. That ought to be worth a little extra. But I'll throw it in for the same price. What are you selling? I can shut up. That's what I'm selling. You see, I'm a Snoopy kind of a guy. I find things out. I get around. I got around one afternoon in Sausalito. I overheard a little conversation down in Mexico. I found out about a little plot of yours. I guess you wouldn't want me to say nothing about how you're fixing to frame Michael. Yeah, frame him for a murder you're going to commit. Well, let's talk it over tomorrow, huh? When you'll be playing dead and somebody else we both know is really dead? No, thanks, Mr. Grisby. We'll settle our account right now. All right, Broom. If you insist. <laughs> Shooting a gun. Yeah, we're just doing a little target practice. 
That's what you're gonna say, isn't it, when you shoot the gun down by the boat landing? People come out of the bar to see what happened? You're gonna say, I was just doing a little target practice. Of course, really, you're supposed to have shot me. And later, when nobody's looking, you're supposed to have thrown my corpse into the bay. <laughs> <laughs> Mister. Yeah. Here's my car. Let me know if there's any damage. Looks like you got damaged. Hey, look at your hand. It's no, cut. It's Bam. Okay, fella, really. good good night. Night. Well, uh, good night, good night, Mr. Grisby. Good night. Did you get a good look at it? What's that? It's a truck driver, I mean. He'll make a good witness. What? He'll testify he saw us just before the murder. <laughs> <laughs> I'll call a doctor. Did already. Trouble is, the doc will report the police. Police will want to know who was the certain party who shot me. Don't worry. He'll get his. There's, there's going to be a murder. Ain't going to be no fake murder. Not this time. Somebody's going to be killed. You mean? Yeah. Your husband. Maybe he's the one that's going to be knocked off. What? Could be. You'd better get down to his office if you want to do anything about it. blood all over the floor of the car. My blood. It's perfect. If you shot me, there would be blood, fellas, see? Now, when you get back to the garage, start washing out the blood stains. You're trying to wipe out the evidence, see? But be careful not to do such a good job that they can't analyze the stains. <laughs> he said, just try to wash that out. Now, come on, get the guns in the glove compartment. Good. Come on now, let's go. Now, be sure and let the people in the bar in there get a good look at you. They're bound to ask about the shooting. Just say you're doing a little target practice. Be sure and wait until you hear the speedboat get away. Understand? Where are you going? Give me that cap. <laughs> what are you laughing at? Wait and see.
San Rafael, please. Hello, I want to speak to Mrs. Bannister. What? It's me, Bruce. Get down to the office, Montgomery Street. You was framed. Grisby didn't want it. Disappear, he just wanted an alibi. And you're it. You're the fall guy. Grisby's gone down there to kill Bannister. Now! Hello. with my God. Yes, Michael? You were asking for me? Pardon me, please. You freely make the following confession. Confession? On the evening of August 9th, I shot and Grisby. killed George Grisby. Then, then it wasn't you that was killed. It was him, Grisby. Hello, darling. Have you heard the news? George has been murdered. He was found here in the street with Michael's cap in his hand. Michael is going to need a good lawyer. Well, it's my own fault, but that's how I got into it, big boob that I am. I began to ask myself I wasn't out of my head entirely. The wrong man was arrested. The wrong man was shot. Grisby was dead, and so was Broom. And what about Bannister? He was going to defend me in a trial for my life, and me charged with a couple of murders I did not commit. Either me or the rest of the whole world is absolutely insane. You know my associate, Mr. Seeley, dear. He's Hello, arranged for your pass into the jail. It's right here in the building. You want him to take you? I'd rather go by myself. All right, Seeley, I'll join you in the office. Okay, Mr. Bannister. Excuse me, Mrs. Bannister. So you want to be alone with Michael? It was your idea. Morning, Bannister. Good morning, Judge. That boy of yours still in the hospital? Been home since Tuesday. Well, that's fine, Judge. Thanks. Wasn't it your idea? What's that, lover? Oh, I beg your pardon. Wasn't it your idea? Isn't it your idea to save Michael from the gas chamber? Dorothy Bannister is the only one who can do it. What are you? Sure Hello, you're... Galloway. Hi, Bannister. How's tricks? You know our district attorney, dear? How do you do, Mr. Mrs. Bannister? Oh, Fassbender. I was the murdered man's partner. The other victim was my servant. If I defend Michael, any jury is going to figure I have reason to believe that he's innocent. And you have reason to believe that Michael is innocent? I, uh, I hear that Galloway is going to say that Michael took George's corpse into the city in our speedboat. But he didn't. We can prove... Prove? George couldn't have taken it. Why not? Well, how could he get back? Back where? To the yacht, naturally. The speedboat couldn't have driven itself. Or maybe it was George's ghost. Maybe the boat just drifted back. Now, lover, Michael has got to plead excusable homicide. But you can prove he didn't do it with his gun. They already know it wasn't Michael's gun that killed George. 
The gun that did kill George can't be found, lover, so we can't prove that Michael didn't shoot him. And it was Michael's gun that killed Broom. Now, Michael is going to need everything that the greatest uh, living trial lawyer can do for him. Our good district attorney over there has worked up a beautiful case. The truck driver, the fat saloon keeper down at the docks, they'll be effective witnesses. And he'll know how to handle them. And then there's this uh, crazy confession. But Michael has an explanation. <sighs> explanation? You think it's funny? Funny? You mean that story about how George hired Michael to kill George? To pretend to kill him. Really? Why would George want to disappear? Michael said something about partnership insurance. What? Partnership insurance. Which he, George, wanted to collect. Yes, yes. And he, George, wanted everybody to think he was yes. dead. Dead so that he could collect the insurance. Yes. Well, if he was dead, how could he collect? Now, lover, if your Irishman doesn't want to go to the gas chamber, he's going to have to trust me. But you, do you trust him? I wouldn't trust him with my wife. You want to make sure he doesn't get off, don't you? I've never lost a case, remember? Besides... My wife might think he was a martyr. I've got to defend him. I haven't any choice. And neither have you. Hello. It looks bad for me, isn't that what your husband says? Whatever Elsie is, Arthur's a marvelous lawyer. You've got to trust him, Mike. Why? Why because should I trust because him? Because it's your only chance. Because I want you to. I'll have to do for a reason. Michael. Why did you kill Broom? What? Don't be afraid to tell me, please. I just want to know. Well, sure, does Grisby kill Broom? Of him. What's going to murder your husband? George, kill Arthur. You know that. What could he possibly gain from it? Well, for one thing, he couldn't get a divorce. What? Yes, that was the chief reason Grisby wanted people to think he was dead, so he could get away from his wife. Wife? But that's impossible. Why? George didn't have a wife. He wasn't married. Mrs. Bannister, hey, I saved the seat for you. Would you gentlemen please move over? Oh, I just want to look at her. Sit, I said, sit down. <laughs> Question calls for the operation of the officer's mind. Sustain. Very well, in the interest of saving time, we'll proceed. As I'm sure Officer Peters is most anxious to go home to his wife and family before returning to duty. Now then, Officer Peters. Except for the blood, the clothes were dry. Yes, sir. They were dry. 
Yet the defendant stated in his confession that he threw the body into the bay. Your Honor, the district attorney isn't cross-examining. He's making speeches. That simply isn't so. I move for the declaration of this trial. These are some of the... The jury has been prejudiced. These are some of the great Bannister's trial tactics in appeal for... The district attorney is beginning to get vicious. When you two gentlemen get over your argument, tell me who won. Then I'll decide on the objection. <laughs> Objection sustained. Your witness, Mr. Bannister. No questions. Except, yes. Officer Peters, uh, I don't wish to keep you from your wife and children uh, any more than the district attorney who was so concerned about them a moment ago. But uh, I would like to ask you one question. Officer Peters, have you a wife and children? Well... No. <laughs> Thank you. You may step down. Oh, your next witness. I call... Arthur Bannister. It's certainly unusual, Your Honor, to put a defense attorney on the witness stand, but I'm confident that my client will make no objection. Hey, Galloway can't make Bannister testify against his own client, can he? Uh, hey, what happened? Oh, all right, shut down. Your Honor, I wouldn't take this step if there were any more effective means of establishing the evidence I wish to bring forward. With my client's express permission, Mr. Bannister will take the stand. I've never seen anything like that before. I always thought he was smart. I don't come any smarter. You ain't kidding. You solemnly swear the evidence you're about to give in this case be the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, so help you God. State your name. Arthur Bannister. <coughs> Mr. Bannister, you are a member of the bar. I am. <laughs> and have been, and have been for a number of years. That is correct. <coughs> the, def <coughs> the defendant, Michael O'Hara, worked as a member of the crew of your yacht. Yes. Did he seem happy in his job? I beg your pardon. You had your back Did turned. Did he seem happy in Reasonably his job? So. Did you get that answer? I did. Reasonably sir. so. As a matter of fact, wasn't he threatening to quit? Yes. Did you know, Mr. Bannister, that right after the murder, <coughs> Right after the murders, we found the defendant's bags packed and everything put away in readiness for an immediate departure. Yes. Well, in your experience as an attorney, would this not indicate premeditation? The district attorney is again making speeches. Premeditation and planned Making speeches and drawing conclusions. I am not drawing you conclusions. You are drawing now, conclusions. Gentlemen, gentlemen. And he is asking improper questions improper in order to influence your honor, the jury. I and I must ask I'm your afraid. honor to declare a mistrial. Overruled. Exception. No further questions. Would your honor kindly explain to the jury that since the district attorney has placed me in the position of a witness, that I am permitted as the defense attorney to cross-examine myself? These are more of the persuasive Mr. Bannister's trial tactics. The, uh, <coughs> the jury is so instructed. Question. 
Mr. Bannister, did the defendant say anything as to why he had taken the job? Answer. Yes, Mr. Bannister. <laughs> he reminded Mr. Bannister that Mr. Bannister had to go to the Siemens hiring hall and use his uh, persuasive powers to convince the defendant to take the job. Question. Can you think of anything else, Mr. Bannister, that is relevant to this inquiry? Well, I found this boy to be clean-cut, courageous, resourceful, honest, hard-working. Question. Now, now, Mr. Bannister, please answer the question yes or no. Can you think of anything else that is relevant to this issue? Answer. No. <laughs> Very well. Thank you, Mr. Bannister. You may step down. Your Honor, I have a subpoena for a witness who is present in the courtroom. May I have the bailiff serve it at this time? Bailiff will serve the subpoena. I call Mrs. Arthur Bannister. There's no one that she has to take that, is there? I don't know. Sit down. Sit down and mind your own business. Where the evidence you're about to give will be the truth, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, so help you God. State your name. Mrs. Arthur Bannister. Mrs. Bannister, did you ever have guards to police your house or the yacht on which you just made a cruise? No. Why? We never felt the need of it. You have no children, have you? I have no children. You have no children. So you were never concerned about kidnappers, is that correct? That is correct. There was a man employed in your house and on your husband's yacht named Sidney Broom? Yes. You've known Mr. Broom for several years. Uh, no. Would it surprise you if I were to tell you that the detective hired by your husband in divorce cases was Sidney Broom? The man who was employed in your house as a butler and on your husband's yacht as a steward and who was subsequently murdered. I object. Does counsel deny the... Oh, overruled. Does counsel deny that the butler broom is the detective broom used by him in divorce cases? Mrs. Bannister, can you think of any reason why your husband would want to hire a divorce detective other than to watch you? I object. Objection sustained. As a matter of fact, didn't you and your husband have an argument about your showing an infatuation for O'Hara? We did not. Isn't it a fact that the defendant O'Hara made advances to you and told you he was infatuated with you? He was very respectful. Speak up, Mrs. Bannister. He was very respectful. And I think he was fond of... Just... What is your definition of fond, Mrs. Bannister? As a matter of fact, you and Michael O'Hara have kissed each other, haven't you? To name one occasion, you were seen in the aquarium of this city kissing each other. Do you deny that? No. 
No further questions. Your witness, Mr. Bannister. No questions. The State Department has refused any comment. Meanwhile, here in San Francisco, the fate of Black Irish O'Hara, notorious waterfront agitator whose trial for the murder of socialite George Grisby has held the front pages these recent weeks, remains undecided. As the jury, already out seven hours, has still to return a verdict. The whole Black Irish case, according to well-informed sources here... they take usually. Can't ever tell about it, Johnny. Excuse me, Your Honor. Oh, yes? The jury's coming out now. Oh, thank you, Officer Gnolte. have been telling you. How did you imagine that I didn't know she's been coming to see you? She asked me to trust you. But you don't. The jury has reached its verdict, Mr. Bannister. What? Because I know you wanted me to be convicted. Now that it's too late for you to do anything about it, I might as well tell you. This is one case I enjoy losing. I'm coming to see you in the death house, Michael. Every day. Our little visits will be great fun. I'm going to ask for a stay of execution. I really hope it will be granted. I want you to live as long as possible before you die. You're talking kind of tough, aren't you, Mr. Bannister? I've got an edge. I know you're going to the gas chamber. Don't be so sure. I know the killer. I know who murdered Grisby. Ladies and gentlemen of the jury, have you arrived at a verdict? We, the jury. Let's talk to the doctor on the phone. He's coming right over. Said to keep my feet. We need some help out there. Call this crowd all by myself. The way I understand it, Mr. Galloway, he'll be all right if we keep him moving. I need help in there. Because if he goes to sleep, he's done for. Done for? Well, I need at least two of you officers to control the crowd in my court. I'll try and get the right, reporters. You stay here. You do not have to see the reporters. I'll see the reporters myself. We have to prepare a statement. That's it, Manny. Keep him walking. All right, Mr. Galloway.
Stay close together now while I escort you out to dinner. Sure, it's mine. What can you do? We gotta think of something. Hey, that's another jury from another trial across there. Please do not talk about him. the case outside of the jury room. The judge hopes that you will arrive at a verdict as soon as possible. Hey! That way! Come on, let me go! My goodness! My window! My chest problem! But no, how was a fish fine? I expect a full report from you. Get off the floor, Officer Fishbine. Hello? No pictures. Hello? That woman's too nice looking to have stolen all that jewelry. Jewelry duty is such a responsibility, don't you think? Hey, you! You were told not to talk about the case. Now don't let it happen again. All right, keep moving. Hello,
Why did you do it, Michael? I didn't. I'm not guilty. Oh, oh, the pills. You mean the pills. I saw you begging me to swallow them, begging me with your eyes. But you didn't mean for me to take them all, of course. So I held some back, but not enough. I took too many of the pills. I'm faint. And now what? Well, I've got to find something. Don't you first know they'll kill you? Faint. Where do you I've think you can hide? I've got to find that gun. Gun? What? Gun? I've got to find the gun that killed Grisby. It'll prove I'm innocent. Well, I phoned our, our servant Lee. We're, we're trying to arrange something, someplace to take you. Just wait here quietly and watch the plane. Put your arms around me. not move. I mean it. I found the gun. You killed Grisby, yes. You're the killer. I was right. She was the killer. She killed Grisby. Now she was going to kill me. Her servant, Lee, and his friends smuggled me out in the darkness and hid me where I'd be safe from the cops. Not safe from her. One of the Chinese worked in an amusement park. It was closed for the season. An empty amusement park makes a good hideout. And she wanted me hidden. Well, I came to... in the crazy house. And for a while there, I thought it was me that was crazy. After what I'd been through, anything crazy at all seemed natural. But now, I was sane on one subject, her. I knew about her. She planned to kill Bannister, she and Grisby. Grisby was to do it for a share of Bannister's money. That's what Grisby thought. But of course, she meant to kill Grisby, too, after he'd served his purpose. Poor howling idiot. He never even did that. He went and shot Broom, and that was not part of the plan. Broom might have got to the police before he died. And if the cops traced it to Grisby, and the cops made Grisby talk, he'd spill everything, and she'd be finished. So she had to shut up Grisby, but quick. And I was the fall guy. <laughs>
were less likely to be heard. I was thinking it was only your husband you wanted to kill. Why don't you try to understand? George was supposed to take care of Arthur, but he lost his silly head and shot Broom. After that, I knew I couldn't trust him. He was mad. He had to be shot. And what about me? Oh, we could have gone off together. Into the sunrise. You and me, for you and Grisby. I love you. One who follows his nature keeps his original nature in the end. But haven't you heard ever of something better to follow? No. I knew I'd find you two together. If I hadn't, Elsa, I might have gone on playing it your way. You didn't know that. But you did plan for me to follow you. You've been drinking. I presume you think that if you murder me here, your sailor friend will get the blame and you'll be free to spend my money. Well, dear, you aren't the only one who wants me to die. Our good friend, the district attorney, is just itching to open a letter that I left with him. The letter tells all about you, lover. So you'd be foolish to fire that gun. These mirrors, it's difficult to tell. You are aiming at me, aren't you? I'm aiming at you, lover. Of course, killing you is killing myself. It's the same thing. But you know, I'm pretty tired of both of us. <laughs> make a lot of mistakes. You should have let me live. You're gonna need a good lawyer. and you're right there. But she said we can't fight it. We must deal with the badness, make terms. And didn't the badness deal with you and make its own terms in the end, surely? You can fight, but what good is it? Goodbye. You mean we can't win? No, we can't win. Give my love to the sunrise. And we can't lose, either. Only if we quit. And you're not going to. Not again. Oh, Michael. I'm afraid. Michael. Come back here. Michael. I'm gonna die! <laughs> 
went to call the cops, but I knew she'd be dead before they got there. I'd be free. Bannister's note to the DA to fix it. I'd be innocent officially, but that's a big word, innocent. Stupid's more like it. Well, everybody is somebody's fool. The only way to stay out of trouble is to grow old, so I guess I'll concentrate on that. Maybe I'll live so long that I'll forget her. Maybe I'll die trying.